You're listening to Program to Chill, a show about business, crime, parapolitics, and esoterica with your host, Jimmy Fallon Gong. This is episode 21, Krupp Steel, part 4, Berta and Gustav Krupp, or Politics is Forbidden Here. This week I'm recording from the Reichstag. And yet again, this episode brought to you by Otis Elevators. When you rise, we shine. Some of my listeners might know that I like to jump into a story in media res before getting to the meat of the topic for the day, where I might tell a just-so story that, you know, makes some point about the greater themes of the episode, right? A little technique, a little look behind the curtain, right? But given the fallout from Fritz Krupp's mysterious death, I kind of feel like we're already in the thick of it, so to speak, so let's just keep going with that narrative. When Fritz Krupp probably killed himself, or legally died anyway, he left the Krupp company, the Krupp concern, in a really weird spot. For one thing, this is when the company switched from a sole proprietorship to a stock company, albeit one still privately held by the Krupp family. Due to German laws and Fritz's will, Marga's brother-in-law received one share, and three of the board members received one share and Bertha Krupp received the rest of the shares, fully 99.9975% of the company. She wasn't even 18 years old yet. In the meantime, the company was to be run by Fritz's board of directors. It was taken as a given that Bertha would not be able to run the company. She was a woman, after all. And from before Alfred, going onward, It was the wishes of every member of the family to prevent the business from being a publicly held stock company, so that was out of the question too. There was really only one option, to marry Berta off to someone reliable, who could run the company responsibly in the interests of both the Krupps and of Germany. Does this sound a little bit like the court intrigues around heirs to the throne of medieval Europe? Solving this problem literally became a concern for national security, and it was treated as such. In the meantime, they sent Fritz's daughters, Berta and Barbara, off to a fashionable finishing school till they came of age. Interestingly, Marga Krupp, the widow to Fritz Krupp, Marga takes an interesting form of control here. She could have very easily been completely sidelined, as she didn't have any legal claim to the company, and she certainly didn't run it. And she did leave the business to the directors, but in other ways, she understood that the balance of power lay with being close to the throne and courted in the Kaiser's favor. She also understood that she had the right to choose the board members, and so she chose them shrewdly and wisely, having lost all trust in men after Fritz Krupp. She appointed men who would be loyal to her family and to the Kaiser. And she picked one that would end up being very important. That's right. She picked Alfred Hugenberg to be on the Krupp board. Now, I don't blame you, dear listener, if you don't follow the endless stream of Kraut names from 100 to 200 years ago. I wasn't huge on the Second Reich and on Weimar, on the Weimar Republic myself. And I wasn't planning for this to be a Second Reich Weimar podcast, but here we are. But Alfred Hugenberg is super interesting, so let's do a recap real quick. 
Alfred Hugenberg came up first in episode 9, where he was a major power broker and leader of the German Nationalist Party. Then he and his party came up in the campaign that they ran with the Nazis against the Young Plan, which adjusted reparations for World War I. Opposing the Young Plan helped the Nazis gain prominence. Then the Nationalist Party split, which allowed the Nazis to absorb portions of their base, and then the Nationalist Party formed a coalition to bring down the Weimar government. Finally, Hugenberg and his party were present at that fateful meeting near the Brocken, where literally every right-wing group participated in that satanic affair. In short, Hugenberg was a crucial player in the Nazis' rise to power. But before all that, Marga Krupp chose him to be on the Krupp Board of Directors relatively early in Hugenberg's career. Also, for reference, at this time, there were over 80 Krupp factories and roughly 63,000 Kruppiana working in Essen. And, as a reminder, at this point, company police could enter any home without warning or warrant. Another wise thing that Marga did was to dramatically increase the company's spending on charity and social welfare. And she taught Berta Krupp, her daughter, to do the same. For instance, Marga would literally visit the homes of sick workers or their sick family members, which sounds nightmarish on one hand, but it's also hard to argue that it doesn't make a big impact on people. She would meet and talk with any Krupiana worker who requested to meet with her, and there's a long list of charities that she started or gave money to. Every year, Marga and Berta would bring the workers who had reached 25 or 50 years of employment and would pin silver and gold Krupp medallions on their lapels. There's the story of, of one absolutely mad worker who was invited to Via Wagel for one of these occasions, and, and during his visit, he stuffed a number of cigars that he found in the mansion into his pockets. Then, when the time came to leave, he bowed to the women and spilled all the cigars all over the floor. Berta reportedly replied, Why, Herr Schmidt, you must never bring your own cigars when you come to visit us. Also, not to be like that, but let's remember that this didn't happen in a vacuum. Marga's husband, Berta's father, Fritz Krupp, had recently been outed as an ardent, secret pederast who ran a quasi-blasphemous hermitage where he abused young boys, so forgive me if I have my doubts about the Krupp family's charitable donations suddenly going up in the aftermath. Kaiser Wilhelm II started screening for Berta Krupp's potential marriage partners, and he did that personally. Which, I suppose, could sound sweet in like a will and grace sort of way, until you remember that Berta probably ought to have the agency to pick her own partner, and that this was to be a marriage of convenience for the national security state, first and foremost. In 1906, the Kaiser decided that Berta was ready for marriage, and he introduced her to a man who was, at the time, attaché to the Royal Prussian Embassy to the Holy See, stationed right there at the Vatican. His name was Gustav von Bolen und Halbach. Gustav proposed to Berta almost immediately, and she accepted. William Manchester wrote that there was little doubt in Essen that the alliance had been contrived and managed by the imperial Cupid in Berlin. 
Let's talk about Gustav Krupp, who might be my second favorite Krupp after Alfred. Gustav actually came from a German family who emigrated to the United States. In the United States, they acquired major holdings in the coal fields of Scranton, Pennsylvania. Now, for a different thing I was researching, I was actually reading about the Mafia's presence in the coal fields of Scranton, so I'd love to find a link there, but I'll have to wait on that one. I'll get back to you on that, dear listener. So, one of Gustav's ancestors was Colonel Bolin, who fought in the U.S. Civil War. Colonel Bolin fought in the Mexican-American War as well. He also fought as a mercenary in the Crimea, and because German immigrants were more aligned on the northern side at the time, he fought for the Union against the South. He led a German-American regiment, the 75th Pennsylvania Volunteers. Colonel Boland died heroically in the Second Battle of Manassas. The family was so impressed by his sacrifice that they hyphenated their last name, making it Bolin Halbach. And if you were as boring as Gustav Krupp, I guess you would probably also want to point back to the one badass in your family as well. So Gustav's father chose to return to Prussia. Using his family's coal money, Gustav's father was ennobled by the Grand Duke of Baden, and so Gustav was minor nobility when he entered the Prussian military. Gustav then got a law degree and then entered the civil service. In doing so, Gustav went through the Prussian diplomatic training, which Bismarck had contemptuously dismissed as the school for dullards, and that holds for Gustav Krupp. After that, Gustav served in the Washington, D.C. and Beijing embassies before he was sent to the Vatican. Somehow, Gustav Krupp was present for the Boxer Rebellion, and yet seems to have learned nothing from the experience, had no opinions about it or the Chinese, and somehow walked away knowing literally nothing about China. Gustav kept up the Krupp tradition of witnessing wild and interesting historical events and having no real interest in them. Although the term didn't exist in Gustav's time, in retrospect, he's been described as the quintessential true believer and company man, but for Imperial Germany and then the Krupp concern. Since we went through a brief introduction of Gustav Krupp, let's get into some of the details of his fascinatingly depressing life. He's like a rare exotic bird in how specifically depressing a life can be. And he really gives Alfred, and I suppose Fritz too, a run for their money. So right off the bat, Gustav took Berta's last name, which sounds cucked, but was pretty common back then, at least among the nobility, especially when marrying a woman with a higher social class. For instance, Max Erwin von Schubner Richter, who we talked about in episode 7, he was one of those mysterious German-Russian Nazi fundraisers. He also took his wife's last name, or at least hyphenated his own name, I guess you could say. So Gustav became Gustav George Friedrich Maria Krupp von Bolen und Halbach, and his profession, at least at first, was now professional husband. Although, over time, he would more or less run the Krupp concern. And like, I'm not joking about his job being professional husband. He was almost certainly told, in no uncertain terms, that his job was to breed Bertha, 
and that is what he did. They went on to have eight children. Even funnier, though, Gustav's childhood nickname came out, which was Taffy, and way too many people referred to him mostly behind his back as Taffy Krupp. He was known as the most finicky of the coal and steel barons, and everybody knew that he held his position because of his wife, which reduced his standing in everyone's eyes. I suppose there's much more dignity in being born. I suppose there's much more dignity getting your position by being born into a coal and steel family, but what are you going to do? Here's a good one. A popular Ruhr Valley joke about him said that when Gustav was born, the doctor threw away the baby and kept the placenta. That's how much of a non-entity he was, at least at first. Along the same lines, I'm going to pick my words very carefully here, because I love and respect train guys and gals. I think it's cool to be into trains, and I wish there were more trains in the United States. Still, to me, there is something terribly depressing about being a model train guy. I can't shake it. It's like a feeling I have when I see model train, like elaborate model train setups, I just see depression. And Gustav Krupp was a model train guy. So, in the most German thing I've ever heard, in true Germanic fashion, Gustav Krupp scheduled precise times to play with his children. 60 minutes a week, on the dot. And their play involved running a running an elaborate model train setup on a precise series of timetables. He had his children prepare everything for the operation of the train. They had an elaborate train setup with quadruple underpasses, triple switches, roundhouses, and tiny repair shops. And I quote here, Stopwatch in hand, he would observe the progress of the locomotives, the coaling operations, the taking on and discharging of passengers, the loading and unloading of freight cars. It was, he explained to his sons and daughters, good training for them. Because parental approval was at stake, and because no one could be icier than Gustav Krupp when he withheld it, they toiled until they had achieved perfection. The trains in Via Wegel always ran on time. Unquote. Which, I mean, I suppose this is probably more fun than some of the prior Krupp childhoods, so, you know, I'm not going to complain too much, but it still seems a little bit crazy. Now, there's always a debate about whether the ends justify the means to a given thing, and a lot of times more sociopathic people do think that the ends justify the means, and the reasonable mean or average of humanity probably thinks that there's a healthy balance to be found, right? But still, Probably the least popular opinion is the opposite. There are people out there who believe that the means justify the ends, actually. And Gustav Krupp was one of those people. He believed in process and procedure. In manners, he was literally trained to be a diplomat, right? One of his favorite phrases, he loved to shout it. He would shout, politics is forbidden here. He would say it in all kinds of circumstances. Just a very interesting guy. Also, although they had eight children, lest you think that their marriage was too happy, here's a bit of gossip for you. One of Berta Krupp's self-assigned tasks and a 
private personal obsession of hers was to get up in the middle of the night, mind you this is the giant mansion via Wagle, and she would go walk to the servants' bedrooms, which were separated by gender. And if she saw a man in the woman's hallway or a woman in the man's hallway, she would fire them on the spot. She was downright obsessed with keeping her servants from having sex, presumably forgetting about the possibility of intergender activities as if she didn't go to a girl's finishing school or couldn't recall her father's own crimes, right? Just a little signal of some neuroses on Berta's part. Even though in the Krupp family saga, most of the women are mostly ciphers. Now, I didn't mean to dwell so much on how weird Gustav Krupp was, but, I mean, he's pretty fascinating, right? He was a really weird dude. So when Gustav married and took over as trustee and chairman for for and in place of his wife, he and the board took time to do a, a major review of the Krupp Concerns financial books and all of their holdings, and it astounded even the board. In this review, an audit you could say, they found out that they owned a huge swath of Australia's ore mines and rights to monazite mines in India. Through a dummy company, they were the sole owner of New Caledonia's vast nickel mines. Even crazier, through cartels and shell companies, the Krupp company had invested over a million marks in the public stocks of British munition firms, and they owned large chunks of Austria's industries as well. The Krupp company was well on its way to being a transnational juggernaut, already much larger than the government or public even realized. Gustav and his board were positioned to foresee the coming importance of barbed wire, and they cornered the market, buying the main factory for manufacturing barbed wire. This investment would pay massive dividends during World War I. They also became the world's largest producer of diesel engines and patented stainless steel. All of these investments required massive injections of capital, but they were able to raise some of it through public bond offerings. Now at this point in 1911, the third richest person in Germany was Baron von Goldschmidt Rothschild of the Frankfurt Banking House. His fortune was estimated to be valued at 163 million marks. The next richest person was Prince Henkel von Donnersmark, whose descendant, I must add, was Florian Henkel von Donnersmark, who would direct the German film The Lives of Others about the supposed sins of the Stasi. Never trust a German with von in their last name. Remember that. Prince Henkel von Donnersmark had a fortune valued at 254 million marks. At number one, richest person in Germany, was Bertha Krupp, whose fortune clocked in at 283 million marks. And remember, this is in 1911 money. Her annual income was more than 6 million American dollars. What's more, many of the innovations that Fritz Krupp brought to the table involving foreign relations, arms dealing, and espionage became formal, widespread, and systematic under Gustav Krupp's administration. For instance, Krupp salesmen were already regularly reporting what they saw and heard to German embassies 
as early as 1903. Krupp salesmen were often stationed in houses immediately next to German embassies. The salesmen, which Gustav called plenipotentiaries of the firm Krupp, were usually citizens of whatever country they were selling to, and they were usually men with unique connections. For instance, Vienna's Krupp salesman was a friend of the Rothschilds, while New York's was a relative of J.P. Morgan. Copenhagen's was a future Danish minister of war, and the salesman in Brussels was the brother-in-law of the war minister, while in Beijing it was the nephew of the emperor, and in Rome it was the president of the Chamber of Commerce. But I can hear you now, dear listener, asking, did Gustav and Bertha Krupp have the common touch, or were they disconnected from reality? Why, I think you know the answer, though, already. Of course they were disconnected from reality. And here's a great example. In 1912, they held the Krupp Centenary Celebration, celebrating 100 years of Krupp. It was called an orgy of spending chauvinism self-congratulation, and misty nostalgia. It was vaguely modeled after England's Diamond Jubilee of 1897. The nation wrote that it was being celebrated all over Germany as if Krupp were a branch of the government, as, in a sense, it is. To be fair, the Krupp family distributed 14 million marks among the firm's workers, something like $200 per worker, if it were distributed equally among all workers, though it was probably somewhat distributed among seniority, I believe. In Essen, they held a three-day festival, with the Kaiser showing up in his full battle dress with his large entourage. The Kaiser gave a speech to the crowd where he said, Krupp cannon have thundered over the battlefields where German unity was fought for and won, and Krupp cannon are the energy of the German army and navy today. The ships constructed in the Krupp shipyards carry the German flag into every sea. Krupp steel protects our vessels and our forts, but the Krupp works has not only been an exploiter in this sense, it has also been the first in Germany to recognize the new social problems and to seek to solve them, thus leading to social legislation. There you have it, folks. Krupp as exploiter. Joking aside, the Kaiser was pointing out that Krupp led the country on social legislation. I think that you could argue, in a serious fashion, that Essen was the petri dish where they grew some of the economic and social concepts that would later be implemented with the Nazi party. That is to say, a form of national as opposed to international socialism. The second day of the celebration involved exhibits, demonstrations, an industrial fair, tableau, and large banquets. The third day, though, was the real moneymaker. They planned a full feudal tournament, complete with real jousting. They had prepared full suits of armor, full period costumes for the ladies and servants, even weirder and worse, everyone's costumes were more or less reflecting their current status in society. 
Krupp executives were dressed as noblemen. Kruppiano workers were dressed as serfs or peasants. Now, the world was spared this abomination because, right as they were about to start the jousting, a messenger arrived with news of a mineshaft explosion. 110 miners were dead. Under those circumstances, they realized the optics and canceled the tournament. Nobody pointed out that for 20 straight years, the miners and their managers had been warning their bosses that the mines needed to be periodically watered to prevent the buildup of dust that caused both lung disease and explosions like this. The blood beach with its red leaves just kept on getting redder. In the run-up to World War I, there were voices across the political spectrum who expressed concern about the impending tragedy. On the right, on the business right, Andrew Carnegie said that he was gravely worried about the massive military spending of the great powers of Europe. On the far left, Lenin wrote that Europe had become a barrel of gunpowder. In 1914, Karl Liebknecht of the SPD, the German Social Democrats, said to the whole Reichstag, Krupp is the matador of international Krupp is the matador of the international armament industry, preeminent in every department. When he said this, some representatives tried to shout him down, but he continued, scorning the bloody international of the merchants of death. Can I just say that reading the history of Krupp has given me a new appreciation for the SPD. It can be easy to mock the German Social Democrats if your only exposure to them is reading Lenin devoid of history, because Lenin rightfully dunks on them pretty hard in post-World War I for their mistakes. But, for a pretty good long period of time, the SPD was actually pretty solid. One example of the SPD being good is that the SPD didn't just denounce Krupp and German militarism in general terms, they kept calling out the arms trade in the arms industry in very specific schemes and scams that implicated people in very specific terms, calling out specific real crimes, often putting them on blast for very real prosecutable crimes. For example, the Krupp company manufactured what were, what were called anti-Zeppelin guns. Now, those could literally only ever be used against Germany because only Germany was using Zeppelins. There's no reason for them to have anti-Zeppelin guns except to sell them to the enemy. Even if you could argue that Zeppelins were about to take off and be adopted by the entire world, there's no way to avoid the fact that Krupp had sold the anti-Zeppelin guns to France, England, and Russia the three countries most likely to use them against Germany. The SPD called this out in the Reichstag. Also, at the same time, Germany and Great Britain were in the middle of the Dreadnought Race, also known as the Anglo-German Naval Arms Race. This would culminate in World War I, right? Now, in British Parliament, one of the admirals revealed that Krupp's shipyards were about to sign a deal to provide Great Britain with eight warships per year. Now, the deal fell through due to Sheffield's lobbying efforts. Naturally, they felt like they should be making the warships for Great Britain, right? But 
Krupp did go on to manufacture ships for the United States and Germany. But Krupp would charge Germany literally double the price they were charging the United States. Karl Liebknecht read the details of these deals in the Reichstag, and it surprised and angered the Kaiser. It always seemed like the Kaiser was surprised to find out that Krupp was working with the enemy and making money, sometimes making huge amounts of money. And let's not forget that it was not that many years back that Fritz Krupp was revealed to be a massive predatory pederast, and only the SPD was talking about it. Still, all of this was just a prelude for the scandal to come. We need to talk about the Bronze scandal. So, in 1912, the police caught Krupp agents stealing over a thousand documents from the war office. Around the same time, and related to the stolen documents, police also caught Krupp funding anti-German attacks in the French press in order to stir up new business opportunities. One Krupp employee wrote, One morning, it was the middle of September, one of the accountants entered my office in a great state of excitement. He informed me that Essius, the head of our commercial branch dealing with war material, was at that moment in conference with detectives and an examining magistrate from the criminal investigative investigation department in Berlin. They had come to confiscate secret reports from our Berlin representative. They were mainly concerned with the so-called granulating rollers, or codename for confidential documents, received from Brandt, the secretary. Captain Dreger, our Berlin representative, and Brandt himself had been arrested. I now quote from William Manchester. Brandt systematically paid out large sums to men in uniform. Eight naval officers had received 50,000 marks, and one army artillery officer 13,000 marks. The intelligence received was priceless. It included specifications of every German weapon, contemplated designs, war plans, and correspondence with and about other firms. With it, Krupp could manipulate key military figures. Every move by generals and admirals was anticipated. A profitable war scare could be created by leaking a few selected facts in Paris, which was what happened. At Herringen's request, the police had rounded up the bribers and bribees simultaneously and raided number 19 Vostrasse, where they learned that 700 stolen documents were kept in the Essen safe of, of a retired Krupp executive. Unquote. Krupp? More like corrupt. Am I right, fellas? Karl Liebknecht got involved when someone sent him a plain envelope with no address. The envelope had 17 pages of highly classified information about the police raids and stolen documents. Liebknecht approached the government about it and they told him to wait. The authorities had the confessions, the documents, and even receipts for the bribes, if you could believe that. Only a German would write a receipt for a bribe, I swear. But... For seven months, the police sat on the case. No word of it leaked to the press, and the police started to free the prisoners. The police freeing the prisoners was too much for Karl Liebknecht, and he went and addressed the Reichstag on April 18, 1913. 
Obviously, it is impossible without alluding to Krupp to sing all those patriotic hymns lauding Germany, which are customary in veterans' associations, young German clubs, and other such military societies. The collapse of the good name of Krupp would unquestionably deal a staggering blow to the brand of patriotism we Germans have patented. This celebrated firm systematically uses its fortune to tempt senior and junior Prussian officials to betray military secrets. Obtaining information regarding the contents of secret documents concerning designs, results of tests, and particularly prices quoted by or accepted from other companies for the purpose of private gain. Unquote. The entire Reichstag was shocked, and even more so when General von Herringen, the Minister of War, got up in the Reichstag and confirmed that Liebknecht was correct in his assertions, though he added that there is no evidence that the Essen directors were a party to it, which is completely false, I, I should say. There's no smoking gun evidence that Gustav Krupp knew about the bribes, but he personally approved all spending over 10,000 marks. So, you know. Nobody seriously believed that Gustav or the Krupp concern was innocent. One of the Krupp directors challenged Karl Liebknecht to a duel, which, like, it's the funniest thing I can possibly imagine. <laughs> like... Germany had a pretty vibrant dueling culture at this time, especially among the upper classes. And I just love the idea of being accused of a specific, real, white-collar crime in Parliament, and then just like throwing down your glove and threatening to ceremonially murder your accuser. Sort of underscores the stupidity of dueling, I suppose. So Alfred Hugenberg, Krupp Company board member, screamed, There is no Krupp case! but only a Liebknecht case. And the Kaiser, who staked his reputation on defending Fritz Krupp, known pederast, now threw his weight into protecting Gustav Krupp, and he thought it would be a great time to award Gustav Prussia's Order of the Red Eagle second class with oak leaf cluster, whatever those distinctions mean. Who knows, and who cares? At this point, the scandal literally threatened to take down the government. General von Herringen resigned, and the conservative press's newspapers joined Vorwarts in demanding scalps. Finally, over a year later, Ambassador Brandt, Brandt and Krupp's director Essius were put on trial, along with various military officers. Each officer who took bribes went to prison for six months. Brandt went to jail for four months, and the Krupp director was fined 1,200 marks. Notice that the punishments were loosely the inverse of what real justice would have actually required. Nothing for Gustav, a small fine for his director, a short jail sentence for a government minister, and not insignificant prison time for the German officers. What's that proverb? The fish rots from the head. What can I say? Gustav was protected, because the army high command needed him for, you know, any possible impending world wars that might break out in the near future. Now, that's as good a place as any to stop, since we're really not going to top the Bront, the Bront Krupp trial until World War I, and we're not at World War I yet. So let's go over what we learned today. So, when big business does philanthropy, it's always got a bunch of purposes, but it, Generally, there's a dual purpose. First of all, 
First and foremost, it's PR, public relations. Second, it helps executives, business owners, it helps them sleep at night in a spiritual sense. But also, it gives them peace of mind, as in, I probably won't be murdered in the middle of the night. The Krupps kicked their charity into overdrive after Fritz Krupp died. But even afterward, there was no shortage of crimes that they needed to paper over with some handouts and charity. And we discussed how Essen was a petri dish for the development of economic and social concepts that would eventually become National Socialism. We spent a lot of time talking about Gustav Krupp and what a weirdo he was. One thing that struck me, and of course this is not the most original observation, but when I was little, I was in the Boy Scouts, right? Cub Scouts, Boy Scouts. I was in both. It was fun, and I don't really have any complaints, but especially towards the end of my time in the Boy Scouts, I was getting pretty sick of all the little fake all the fake little badges and ribbons and sashes and meaningless achievements and pins, constant awards and honors. And it, it struck me that Imperial Germany, at least for the upper class, was like being stuck living in a constant world of Boy Scout merit badges, except it's for adults. And the Second Reich, Imperial Germany, it sounds so boring and dull and awful that your three choices, as far as I can tell, was to either become like Gustav Krupp, which is to say an NPC, a hollowed-out zombie automaton with no inner life, or you could be like the Kaiser and his fellas, just a bunch of campy gay dudes having fun being secretly gay, but also way into the military, all that campiness, pomp and circumstances, or you could just be like a normal person, like the proletariat, and the middle classes, who were both subject to way fewer of these insane pressures, but also, you know, you're poor. No matter how you slice it, it sounds pretty bad, man. Then we saw how Krupp had become vastly larger than anyone realized, with secret holdings in shell companies and banks all over the world, including with their direct competitors and would-be makers of the munitions that would kill Germans in the wars to come. Global capital was already transnational and incredibly complex weaved patterns of investments slowly choking the world. We saw how most of the Krupp salesmen switched from being international men of mystery as per like, you know, Dr. Evil, like we talked about last episode, to citizens with powerful connections, usually the brother-in-law or nephew of some powerful person in the home country. You can see the exact things happening today with, like, I don't know, Hunter Biden's work with Ukrainian energy companies, or, you know, take your pick from literally any elected official's stupid children, right? Then, of course, there's the weird feudal tournament that the Krupps thought would be a good idea to put on for the city, where everyone play-acts as either a feudal lord or serf, depending on your actual position in society. Without belaboring the point, that's precisely what these people see themselves as. Feudal lords, and they are right. They have, if not literally all the same powers, they have more or less the same position, if not more in some cases, as the feudal lords. And we are all the serfs. Then, I said it before, but I'll say it again. The SPD, the German Social Democrats, pretty cool, man. At least until World War I. It's nice to see a genuine opposition party 
doing what they're supposed to be doing, causing problems, wrecking, being a gadfly to the government. Even if you're pro-imperial Germany, it's hard to argue that the existence of the SPD isn't healthy for the body politic. Without them, Fritz Krupp probably would have kept abusing boys, and the Krupp company would have kept stealing, kept stealing military secrets in perpetuity. I mean, somebody leaked that classified information to Karl Liebknecht, and it was probably not a German social democrat. The SPD certainly had its purposes, right? Some sort of antibody for the country or something. Ironically, that's not how fans of Imperial Germany saw it then and now. But what are you going to do? Finally, I'm just going to say it. Only a diseased system would find precise proof of widespread bribery, warmongering with the enemy, theft of military secrets, and not enact severe penalties up to and including expropriation. There is no reason why Krupp leadership should have been untouched by the Brandt Krupp bribery case. Seriously, nationalizing companies is not that big a deal. And if you nationalize the company, you can guarantee that they'll stop selling weapons to your enemies. Then again, it probably goes without saying that you can't make sense of Imperial Germany. It's the same country that's about to march headfirst into the buzzsaw of World War I. Next episode, we'll talk about that, including Krupp's role in the lead-up to and during World War I. But remember, politics is forbidden here. The different scandals that Krupp carried out show in pretty stark detail how the arms industry literally has different interests from their own countries. There's a gulf between their interests and their governments, and of course a gulf between their interests and the people of that country. And this is all decades before Eisenhower warned us about the military-industrial complex. That gulf would only grow until, during World War II, entire nations could fall into it. So for sources today, I used The Arms of Krupp, The House of Krupp, and the book Blood and Steel. Thank you for listening. Just tell a friend about the show. I'm on my way to Dusseldorf Prison. See you next week. And God bless.